This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders ended his campaign this morning and endorsed Hillary Clinton. This campaign is about the needs of the American people and addressing... and addressing the very serious crises that we face. And there is no doubt in my mind that as we head into November, Hillary Clinton is far and away the best candidate to do that. But, of course, Sanders still has passionate supporters, including State Representative Joe Salazar of Thornton. He's a delegate to the Democratic National Convention in about two weeks. So is House Majority Leader Chrysanta Duran, but she backs Clinton, and they join us today. Tomorrow, we'll hear from two Republican convention delegates. And Joe Chrysanta, welcome to the program. Thank Good you. morning. Joe, you are a Sanders delegate. As I said, what's your reaction to his endorsement of Hillary Clinton this morning? You know, I'm very proud of Senator Sanders and what he's done uh, throughout this campaign. He has generated a, a movement and a revolution in numbers and in principle that people uh, did not anticipate. In fact, they underestimated him quite seriously. And uh, and I'm just I'm very proud of the fact that uh, he's taken these steps. OK, you answered that question uh, to speak of Bernie Sanders without mentioning Hillary Clinton. What do you think of his endorsement? <laughs> well, as I said, I think that he, he did what uh, what was best for America. Um, I think that, uh, um, you know, Senator Sanders has always done that. He's always done what's best for America. And by endorsing Hillary Clinton, um, he knows that uh, she is uh, the, the best person to beat Donald Trump that we have to beat Donald Trump. Um, But at the same time, his endorsement also was followed with a very strong message to the Democratic Party that we still have some very serious principles and and ideals that we need to rally around. Will you endorse Hillary Clinton? At this point, I have uh, stated that I will not. Um, If she happens to be the nominee, I will vote for her, and I've said that publicly. But my endorsement means that uh, I believe that she... Um, uh, believes in the same principles and values that I have. And at this point, um, there are a couple of things, actually a number of things, that I think that uh, she still needs to work on, such as uh, a clear uh, direction when it comes to opposing the TPP. I think the that, Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. That's right. And we still have issues involving uh, criminal justice and mass incarceration that I need to hear some uh, clear things uh, from uh, from her. And uh, and also the superdelegates. We need to get rid of that system. It is a voter suppression system, and we should not have that in the Democratic Party. These are party leaders, party elders who have uh, superdelegate status. And this was obviously the subject of a lot of consternation in Colorado, where Senator Sanders won the caucuses. Uh, to be clear, you will vote for Hillary Clinton in November. You will not endorse her unless you see some policy shifts. But when the convention comes around in about two weeks, will you cast a ballot for Bernie Sanders at that point? I will take my direction from Bernie Sanders and, um, and also from the people of the state of Colorado. Uh, Colorado went overwhelmingly towards Bernie Sanders. We have a huge delegation that's going. And uh, and as an elected leader, I will listen to the people. And to Bernie Sanders. And to Bernie Sanders. All right. Crisanta, what do you think after hearing both from Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton this morning from Portsmouth? 
It is great to see the unity of Bernie and Hillary coming together to try and advance the right policies for our country um, in a time when the Republicans are still having a lot of uh, tough conversations amongst themselves about whether or not they could support a guy like Donald Trump to be in the White House. And so when we're seeing a lot of divisiveness on the Republican side of the aisle, um, at the end of the day, Democrats want to come together to advance the right policies um, for our country. So I was very thankful to see that. And actually, I think that this Democratic primary has made our party stronger. Um, We saw Hillary Clinton come out um, with a new proposal um, with regards to affordability when it comes to students being able to go to college and looking at some debt-free proposals so that more students are able to get tools to succeed, to be able to ultimately get good-paying jobs. And this is something of an influence that Bernie Sanders had, I think, on on the platform and on Hillary Clinton's stances. I want to push back against this idea that the Democrats are united and the Republicans are not. There are plenty of Democrats who aren't sure what to do now. Well, we look at the alternative and we look at a candidate like Donald Trump, who has built a campaign on divisiveness, who has come out with proposals to build a wall between United States and Mexico with proposals like banning all Muslims from the country. Um, When we see those types of divisive policies coming forward, we need to make sure that we have somebody in the White House who is going to be inclusive, who is going to try and make sure that we have an economy that works for all and not just those at the top. And that's your argument then to Democrats who are not Clinton supporters, because they might be looking at a third party candidate as well. Well, we are stronger as a party. And one thing that I appreciate about Hillary Clinton, and even after the recent tragedies that we have seen, um, and as we have continued to try and figure out how we are going to build greater trust between police and the community, Hillary Clinton, after some of these awful tragedies, she has used very strong language to say that we need to dig deeper into the issues of racial inequality in America and figure out how we can move forward. But at the end of the day, I trust Hillary Clinton to be in the White House and to deal with these very difficult issues and make sure that America moves forward and not back. What do you make of the director of the FBI calling her extremely careless with classified information? Did that give you pause? Hillary said it was a mistake. And she said that if she could do it over again, she would not have made the same decisions. But when we look at the that mistake of Hillary Clinton in comparison to the many, many mistakes of Donald Trump, in the end, we need somebody who is going to be responsible, who is going to be inclusive, who is going to be thinking about how we make sure people have tools to succeed, to be able to get good paying jobs. And that's another reason why her recent proposal when she was in Colorado to advance technology, to advance computer science in classrooms um, mean a lot to Coloradans. Joe Salazar, do you see the Democratic Party as united this morning? No, I don't. Um, this is what I said over the weekend at a Perlmutter event when I was asked to attend to discuss unity. I said, look... It's El- Ed Perlmutter, yes. the congressman. Uh-huh. Right. And what I said was, unity doesn't mean uniting around a person because people come and go. What we need to do as a Democratic Party is we need to be united around principles and ideas. 
That's what we need to be united around. And right now, we don't have that unity. That's why we're seeing the battles that we are on the platform in, uh, in Orlando, um, uh, the Democratic uh, National Committee platform. And right. that's something that we need to start working on in order for this party to move forward. That's where the platform committee has been meeting. Sanders' campaign manager, though, was quoted Monday in The Washington Post saying that Sanders got, quote, way over 90 percent of what he wanted in the platform process, a stance against the death penalty, setting a price on carbon. And then Sanders, as Crisanta has said, managed to influence Hillary Clinton directly on granting free in-state tuition at public colleges and universities for families who make under a certain income. Do you want to say more about the movement you, you, you must see from Hillary Clinton? Sure. And uh, once again, we have the issues with the Trans-Pacific Partnership and what our uh, democratic platform is going to be on that. Um, I've heard from, uh, from, from unions and I've heard from, from uh, middle class and low income uh, folks who are worried about our jobs leaving this country to go overseas um, because of the TPP. And, uh, and they reject it. They utterly reject it. And I think that we need to start listening to the people and we need to reject it as well. And also with superdelegates. Yeah. So let me ask you about superdelegates. Is this something that you're going to bring to the convention uh, that is restructuring this idea of superdelegates? Yes, I think – well, it's definitely going to be brought. Uh, I've been part of, of, of working on this movement uh, of, of the superdelegates. I utterly reject uh, the superdelegate process because it is voter suppression. And as a civil rights and constitutional law attorney, I can see what voter suppression is very clearly. And this, does, this has no place in the Democratic Party. Chrisanta Duran, uh, are superdelegates voter suppressors? I think we need to always be thinking about how we make our system better. And this is a system that has been in place for a very a long time. Um, Hillary Clinton was able to get the support to be able to become the nominee. And there are many of us who are very excited about that. But when I talk about unity within the Democratic Party, that doesn't mean that we are all uniform. These conversations about superdelegates and about trade and about criminal justice reform and how we continue to make sure that everyone can have access to the American dream. Those are conversations that at the end of the day, it makes our party stronger. So do you you like the idea of preserving superdelegates or would you get rid of them? I think we need to continue to figure out how we can bring new people into the process. I would like to get more details about what that specifically um, looks like. But look. So you're undecided on the topic. I I would need more details. Okay. I'd like to ask you both about Veeps and whether uh, Clinton's choice of a running mate would influence how you perceive this. I suppose that's more a question for you, Joe Salazar, who's not uh, fully behind S- Secretary Clinton. Yeah. Uh, the vice- Who would you like to see your pick? Oh, boy, that's that's a really good question because we have so many, so many great uh, uh, individuals out there uh, from Sherrod Brown to uh, uh, to. Uh, Senator Warren to Sanders Sanders himself, but we have a very deep bench of good and 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 well-minded individuals uh, throughout the country. And um, uh, yeah, will the vice presidential pick uh, 
help me move along the way and help other Bernie Sanders move along the way towards Secretary Clinton, yeah, you better believe it. You mentioned Senator Brown from Ohio. And uh, who would you like to see picked, Chris Duran? You know, we are at a point where um, I think Colorado is a such an important state in the nation. And um, it'd be wonderful to see somebody from Colorado from a Western perspective to be able to um, be uh, a VP candidate along with Hillary Clinton. Might um, that be, a, say, a certain governor? Is that what you're getting at? Or a f- certain maybe former senator and Secretary of the Interior. Uh, Those are both two wonderful choices. Um, We have a lot of talent in Colorado. I think we have a lot to add to the national conversation. But you're going to name a name? (laughs) I I would love to see somebody from Colorado. All right. Someone from Colorado. (laughs) Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you. Cassandra Duran is a majority leader of the state house and a Hillary Clinton delegate to this month's Democratic National Convention. Joe Salazar is a state representative from Thornton and a Bernie Sanders delegate. Tomorrow, a pair of Colorado delegates to the RNC, including a woman who promises to take the anybody but Trump fight to the convention floor. And we'll be right back with what's in that bright red fire slurry. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Wildfires are burning across the state. The largest is the Beaver Creek Fire, which has reached more than 19,000 acres in northern Colorado. The destructive Cold Springs Fire in Boulder County remains completely uncontained. Firefighters there are obviously working to change that. They have dropped nearly 170,000 gallons of bright red fire retardant. We wondered what's in it. Shirley Zalstra is with the U.S. Forest Service's Wildland Fire Chemical Systems Division based in Missoula, Montana. And hi, Shirley. Thank you. What exactly is slurry? What is it made up of? Uh, Well, slurry is uh, actually we call it fire retardant, long-term fire retardant. And it's it's one of the tools that we use in fire suppression. We use it to uh, reduce the intensity of fire and to uh, reduce the rate of spread. The the main impetus of using it is to um, to enable firefighters on the ground to access an area and to construct containment lines more safely um, near the fire than if if it were just burning out of control. And what is in it? So the long-term retardants, um, as they're delivered to the fire, they contain about eighty-five percent water. Oh, it sounds like we've lost Shirley, but uh, I understand that we're, we have her on the phone as well. Is that right? Hi, Sh- Shirley. We're going to have you head over to the phone. It looks like we lost our other I'm, connection. I'm sorry. Can, can you hear me now? Ah, we can. So tell us what's, okay. tell us what's in this fire retardant. Uh, you said it was a, lo- a large part of it was water. What else? Yeah, it's about 85% water, um, 10% fertilizers. Uh, currently, the... the the current retardants now contain about um, uh, their ammonium phosphate-based fertilizers. And then the remaining 5% are minor ingredients like corrosion inhibitors, um, coloring, thickeners, which are typically a, a natural gum or clay, um, and stabilizers, things like that. Fertilizers. I'm not understanding why that would help in, in either suppressing or preventing the spread of fire. Yeah, so the fertilizer is actually what the um what the active ingredient is. So the the with the retardants the 
the water that they contain, that's more of a, a vehicle to get the fertilizer to the target. Um, all that water can evaporate, and the, the fertilizer is what's actually doing the work. It's it's slowing down or stopping the fire. There's a an actual chemical reaction going on between the components of the fertilizer and the heat of the fire that, that um, pull the heat out of the fire and reduce that intensity. Oh, fascinating. So there's a reaction happening there. And what makes it red? I feel like I've seen a lot of photos of just that red morass being dumped from aircraft. Right, yeah. So so the um, the product that they're dropping in Colorado is colored with something called iron oxide. And iron oxide, it's a, it's a natural compound. It's, it's rust, basically. Um, if you've ever driven along the road and you see the, um, those red clay-type soils and road cuts, that's iron oxide. And so it's a natural ingredient that's that's put in there. We we color the retardant so that the pilots, when they're dropping it, they can they can see where the retardant is going. It's important that they that they are able to connect those drops so that um, so that they they build a continuous line of of um, you know of the retardant. That is, it's a visual cue. There's a reason it's colored that way so that you can see what you're what you're doing tactically. Exactly. Ah. So the Boulder Office of Emergency Management posted on its Facebook page after the Cold Springs fire began that coming into contact with this retardant could cause irritation. Uh, How concerned should people be that this might be dumped near where they live or work or drink water? Yeah, so um, the, it, it it could be irritating. The that fertilizer in there is a type of salt, and so if you can imagine um, getting table salt into a cut or into your eyes or something, it it can kind of sting. One thing that that you know we really like to emphasize before any product is used out on the national forests or any uh, federal uh, fire um, federal wildlands. It, it goes through a pretty stringent uh, qualification process, and so we look at things like corrosion, we look at the stability, we, we look at how effective a product is, but we also look at, at its toxicity in regards to both uh, mammalian and aquatic species. And so when we're testing, when we're doing those uh, toxicity tests, we, we have requirements that that say that um, before the, a product can be used, it, it has to um, meet the EPA's uh, rating of practically non-toxic for both aquatic and um, mammalian species, and, and mammalian species, and, and that includes human health. How good a job does, does again, the layman's terms for this is slurry, but how, how good a job does this fire retardant do? You know, it does a good job. One of the the things to keep in mind is that um, it's we use it differently than we use water. We 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 make a distinction between a suppressant and a retardant. So we use water as a suppressant. Water is something that goes right on top of the flame. You know, we're, and we're looking to put that put that fire out. Yeah. The 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 retardant. Um, when we use it, we we put it ahead of the fire, and we use it for something called um, indirect attack. <clears throat> Excuse me, where we allow the 
the fire to basically run into that retardant line, and that gives it time for that for that chemical reaction to uh, to occur and to to slow down the the fire as it's moving through. And so, if a fire comes in contact with that, is it guaranteed to stop the fire, or it's just a, a good chance, or what? No, when when we're testing it, we're we. We consider the long-term retardants just that. They slow down the fire. They, they, re, they take the intensity out. Uh-huh. We don't expect them to stop the fire. Uh, that, that's what the firefighters on the ground are doing. We want to make it easier and safer for the firefighters to get in there and, and dig their, their, um, you know, their scratch lines or dig their lines down to, to the mineral soil. So, um, we occasionally or maybe even often the the retardant will put the fire out or or you know the fire just doesn't have enough steam or enough oomph to to get through that that whole width of the fire line but but we always consider that a bonus it it's not something that we expect we we expect to be able to um allow those firefighters to get out there and and work more effectively. Yeah, it allows them to do their jobs. Thanks so much. That is Shirley Zolstra with the U.S. Forest Service's Wildland Fire Chemical Systems Division based in Missoula, Montana. Who knew that that slurry was actually fertilizer? There are tips for cleaning fire retardant from your property at CPRnews.org. Just ahead, Fort Collins rapper Cubala. This is Colorado Matters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. I want to quote from a Facebook post. I have to wake up every day with this skin on my back. I'm scared. I'll admit it. Those words come from Fort Collins hip-hop artist Cubala. Cubala's beats hit on subjects including race, drug abuse, and sexuality. They don't get her see the needle in the sack that's missing. She's probably pissed because it's something that she'll never have. This proves undoubtedly that no man, woman, or child can be the best in our land. We all equal. The devil will never know what it's like to live inside this sheepskin. As I teeter totter over greedy seeds, don't slip, fall in. Yeah. Born Callie Quinones, Cubala prefers not to be categorized by sexual orientation, gender, or race. The artist's latest EP is called Battle Cries. It's all about rejecting labels. Cubala performs at the Walrus Saloon in Boulder tonight, and welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I want you to reflect a little further on that Facebook post. I have to wake up every day with this skin on my back. I'm scared I'll admit it. It's very true. When I leave my house, these are the things that go through my mind, um, going to my car, (laughs) which is, you know, only feet from my front door to going to my job to stopping at a gas station. And I write about this in my music. I write about the daily events so that I can get through life. And you no doubt are thinking about this in light of what has happened in St. Paul and Baton Rouge. Yes. um, And even much further than that, I'm finally starting to just speak up. And (laughs) when is enough enough? I, I, as an artist, have to start saying something. I have to start acting. I have to maybe even start meeting up with police officers in our area to kind of spearhead this movement so that 
this energy doesn't come to Fort Collins. Are you doing that? Have you done that? You know, I was just sitting in the green room with a police officer. And as soon as I came around the corner, my emotions, my energy, like my whole body language changed. I got scared. I didn't know what to say. And as we were sitting there listening to the interview, the very words come across the air saying we need to have these uncomfortable conversations. And so I really feel that when I start manifesting on things and thinking about them, that they just start coming. You were in our green room just on Monday, and we had the chief of police for Aurora Mm -hmm. here. You grew up in Loveland, and you say at a young age you felt you were different from other kids. You have a memory of telling your mom that. What did you say to her? As I remember, (laughs) I looked at her and my aunt and told them right out, I feel like I should be a boy. And she says, you didn't, you never said that. And I'm like, well, if I didn't say it, I was thinking it. Cause right in that moment, the response was, is that really what you think? And I was taken behind uh, closed doors and asked. And it, it, at that time as a kid, in my memory, you almost just kind of close in and recluse all your feelings and all of this stuff just went to the back burner. It was like, well, no, that I just had, maybe I just had to get that off my chest. And then that idea just kept building and building. Okay. I know now I know I'm different in certain ways. Sometimes it was somebody else interacting with me or asking me a question like, are you a boy or a girl? And I still get asked that question. And how do you answer? Now I just, my response is, why does it matter? <laughs> that is, And this happens in front of parents And their child is asking me this and they're looking at me like, oh, my gosh, did my kid just say that? I'm so sorry. It's like, well, here's another situation. Here's another example of those uncomfortable conversations that we need to start having. Why don't we hear some more music? This is Pride from Battle Cries, your fourth release. I was never raised to be a thug. Tough like that. To roll in the gang. Strange, like the Sagittarius I am, I let the roll around in my head for days and then I bury it. One day I will die and you will set fire to my remains. Maybe then I will listen, maybe then you will listen. Either way, the world will see one of us get it, yeah. And I apologize for all of the times I was a misfit. that, regrets of Maybe my life wouldn't be like this. I understand it wasn't until you met your fiancé in 2011 that you were truly able to answer questions about your own sexuality. Um... <laughs> Yeah, actually, she um, just she's very blunt, like and honest, and it brings something out of me that I don't, I don't, I guess maybe I never saw. And she asked me, "Are you transgender?" And at that time, in 2011, I had no idea what that meant. And that's not a term you'd heard before. No, um, and I grew up in the basketball world, sports. So maybe in in her eyes and even in my eyes now, I'm looking back at how sheltered I was from a lot of the things going on around me and in life. Because when you're on a basketball team, it doesn't matter. Um, you're a female, obviously, on a basketball team. This is your label. So you're on this basketball team. And so you let go of all of that. The focus is we got to win. We have a goal. And this is what we're coming together to do. And so... After I got done playing college sports, when I came home, it was really a slap of reality in life in the face. And I started to realize how young I was, things I didn't know that were outside of the textbook. And so are you able to more openly rap about sexuality, for instance, or gender? Yeah, I would I would say so now. And I think it really shows in my music and 
you really, if you go back through the four albums that I have uh, released, you actually can see a storyline of where I was at. And I was just blurting stuff out, really short, choppy, spoken word poetry. Um, and then it starts to develop into more storylines of this is what I'm going through. And some of it's just anger, frustration. And now I'm really starting to speak on intimate moments within my life that are not just intimate to me, but to my family as well. Gosh, I think about News, the song News, from your 2014 release. And I think this is a reflection in part on your father, who has largely been absent. Mm Mm-hmm. There was a 12-year gap, plus a physical harness man. Lying awake, I try to make a track. A record, record, I wish someone would have. I don't know which way to direct my anger. This makes me mad. Grandparents with that spirit in the back. No protection for a daughter, yo, makes me sad. A life for me that wasn't mine, I swallowed by the grief. I met him twice, but wonder why I never went for his teeth. Uh, oh, check it, the blood that runs through me. You talk about meeting him twice? Yep. Um, is that the extent of it? That is the extent of it. I've had one phone conversation with him, and that was my senior year. Um, and I told him, I don't, you know, I don't understand why you're even contacting me now to tell me congratulations. And that's the only conversation I've had on a phone with him. The first time I met him, I believe I was around six years old, and he had come out from California. And, man, it was very brief. And I remember sitting on his lap while riding around in his Corvette and meeting him 20 years later or so uh 29 years old it was just a, a I'm a I'm an accountable person I get held accountable so I would expect other people to hold themselves accountable as well and if you don't hold yourself accountable for your actions I'm going to see right through you and it was a, a denial of of his responsibilities well your mom this, your mom that. No, that's not what I need to hear. What I need to hear is, I'm sorry, this should have never happened. But hold yourself accountable for what you've done. And that didn't happen. It didn't. That must have been painful. It was. And so I wrote what now is news, but I just couldn't sleep one night and woke up and just started jotting on my um, phone notepad and it's turned into it's three pages of just getting frustration out in the moment of what what just happened why why did i feel like i got duped again and in letting this person into my life and sharing intimate time and space and breaking bread with them and even giving him the time of the day but i had to know and so i put it all on this notepad and a few days later i it's like this man i i need to get this out loud i need to say this out loud and not only do i need to hear it it's going to hurt when my family hears it, but here's one of those uncomfortable conversations we have to have. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Fort Collins hip-hop artist Cubala, who will be tonight at the Walrus Saloon in Boulder. You have struggled with um, drug abuse. Mm-hmm. When did you start using? About the age of 15, 16. I got talked into going to a rave and tried several drugs that night. Man, it it was different. It took me away from the reality of what was going on. And I don't even think that at that time I knew that that was what I was doing. I was just living and doing this and experiencing this. You didn't necessarily seek it out as an escape, but of course it had that effect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe that's what I kind of, that kind of dr- sucked me into staying there. And what were your drugs of choice? 
Um, at that time, I had tried ecstasy, ketamine, and cocaine, and that was all on the same night. I hadn't even smoked marijuana until I was maybe 17 years old. And so it was uh, just a lot of raves, a lot of music, a lot of breakdancing, um, and just seeing this, oh, there's what is going on? I've never seen this kind of, uh, I've never been a part of this kind of experience. And yet it must have seemed to you from the outside as so integral to like the music experience and the dance experience. Was it hard to, because you're clean now, mm-hmm. was it hard to unwind those things? You know, I. it's difficult. I found my writing while sitting in a basement smoking methamphetamines. And it was almost like a graduation of drugs and a progression of this is just getting worse and this is getting worse. How, how do I break these apart? How do I separate this person over here that is really scared of life and that is using substance to basically medicate to this person who is trying to free themselves from this and write about it so they can get away from it And that, for me, is me holding myself accountable out loud. If I say it out loud and tell it to the world, then I'm going to have to be accountable for my own actions. And I always joke about it. It's kind of my way of cheating because if if I let you know, then I'm hoping that you will be a friend and hold me accountable if I mess up. (laughs) Huh. I understand that losing someone close to you to drugs also Mm -hmm. played a role. Yeah. um, There's a transitional period for me during... uh, 2005, I'm going to say, when I was at Utah State and I had a cousin overdose, that really rocked me. And I quit basketball that year. I was playing Division One for Utah State. And I looked at the coach in the eyes and said, you, you have no idea. You're, you know, you're telling me I'm a woman amongst children, but you have no idea the person that you're sitting across from right now. And I'm letting you know that I'm not an honest person. I'm letting you know that I am an addict. And I'm letting you know that I need help. And her response was you'll never play basketball again. I kind of took that as a threat. And then I had to say to myself, well, what's more important, your life or the rock, you know, the basketball? And I gave it up. I came home and tried to get sober, tried to get clean, went to an AA meeting with a close friend. And that was one thing that just really opened my eyes was this is not me because I had to try to see myself in all of these people that I was sitting in a room with saying that that is not me. That is not me. That is not me. And even at that time, I still hadn't even come out. It's hard to say that's not me when you don't know exactly who you right. are. <laughs> and so it was not an immediate process no. of getting sober. No. Kubala, you've been diagnosed with MS. Mm-hmm. That's, that's fun. <laughs> it's a challenge. Is it a challenge to stay sober in the face of that? A little bit. Um, with everything kind of weighing in on whether it's work or the politics around uh, the world or my physical pain that I'm going through on a daily, um, I do medicate with herbal remedies and I do drink. Um, and I'm starting to even ask myself, like, if I'm going to try to fix this problem or slow down this disease, then I have to start rectifying some things in my life so that I'm not drinking, so I'm not changing the substance. Just because I put down specific drugs that are street drugs and then picked up a bottle to drink here and there after work, doesn't in my mind, I'm not seeing a difference. I'm seeing you've just moved it. You've shuffled this problem to something else to satisfy your pain. 
And so that is why I'm starting to speak up, because I'm tired of living in that. It's really remarkable how open you are. (laughs) It scares people at times. (laughs) Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I never loosely put my pen at the pad. I can see memories floating like cubes in my whiskey glass. All the things I've been given, I try to give back. Fort Collins hip-hop artist Cubala performs tonight at the Walrus Saloon in Boulder. Her latest EP is called Battle Cries. Coming up next, the search for Edward Abbey and his hidden desert grave. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The grave of Western writer and environmentalist Edward Abbey is said to be where no one would find it. But author Sean Prentice tried. Prentice's Colorado cabin served as his base. He chronicles the journey and conversations with some of Abbey's closest friends in his book, Finding Abbey, which was nominated for a Colorado Book Award this year. And Sean, thanks for joining us by phone. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. Why don't we start with Edward Abbey himself? Here's a clip from a talk he gave at the Telluride Ideas Festival in 1986 when he said Americans had become slaves. Never before in history have uh, slaves been so well-fed, well-medicated, lavishly entertained. But we are slaves nevertheless. Our popular culture, television, rock music, home video, processed food, mechanical recreation, plastic architecture... Is a culture of slaves. Furthermore, this whole grandiose structure is self-destructive. By enshrining the profit motive, that is the love of power, as our guiding ideal, we encourage the intensive and accelerating consumption and exploitation of land, air, water, the natural world, on which this elaborate structure depends for its continued existence. That is a taste of Abby's worldview. That was 30 years ago, and yet it sounds like he could be talking to an audience today. Uh, a friend says Abby walked a line between activist and jerk, although the friend used a more colorful word. You write how Abby used even small actions to make a point. Tell us about how this environmentalist used littering as a statement. Well, I read Desert Solitaire and the Monkey Ranch Gang when I was in college back in uh, 1994 at Western State College. And when I was reading The Monkey Ranch Gang, there's a scene, and I'll talk about this scene first, and then I'll take it you to that small action of littering. And in The Monkey Ranch Gang, the main character, George Washington Hayduke, drives a Jeep down a highway, and he throws his beer cans and his beer bottles out the window and he litters the highway. And then Abby writes about that in an essay where he talks about uh, littering the highways, and, and he says, of course I littered the highways. Uh, it's not the beer bottles that are ugly, it's the highway that's ugly. Huh. And I always hated Abby in that moment for promoting littering. It just seemed like such a, a silly thing to be promoting. There were so many big environmental issues we needed to worry about, and Abby was condoning throwing uh, beer bottles out the window. But then later on, I was talking to one of Abby's great friends, Ken Slight, And Ken was talking about a moment he and Abby had down at Glen Canyon Dam. And they were in the parking lot of Glen Canyon Dam, and it was brand new. It was flooding Glen Canyon, which Ken Slight deeply loved. And it was creating Lake Powell, and and Ken Slight never called it by that name. He only ever called it Lake Fowl. (laughs) 
But when, when he and Abby were there, they were just watching the water back up, and they were watching this, this reservoir get created, and they were watching this canyon get destroyed. And they couldn't figure out how to stop it. They tried to stop the dam from being built, and they had failed repeatedly. They had done everything they could, and, and they had lost. And they were just filled with rage over this destruction. So they went back to their car, and they found a whole box of beer bottles that they were going to take to get recycled. And what they decided to do was to take those beer bottles and smash them in the parking lot. And Ken Slight, when I talked with him, he, his voice was just filled with emotion. And he recognized that it wasn't a very powerful protest. There were so many bigger things they had tried to done, do but failed at doing. But this was what they were left with. And after they threw the bottles, uh, Ken looked at me and he said, uh, you know, that was, that was a true protest. And, uh, and I did it then, and, and we would do it again if that was the only thing we had left to do. And that was just one of the beautiful moments of Abby with one of his friends, Ken Slight, you know, making an environmental statement in any way possible. Mm, big and small. Tell us what you knew about Abby's grave before you started looking for it. Well, again, I started reading Abby back in college, and slowly I started hearing about this mythical grave, and I think of it kind of like Henry David Thoreau's shack. It's this mythical, mythical place. Hmm. But I, I knew very little about it. I knew that when Abby died in 1989, that four of his friends drove him out into a desert. I knew that they dug a hole and buried him illegally on public lands, and that his grave was this mystery out there somewhere in the West, somewhere in some desert. And that was as much as I knew at the time. I am going to reserve... Uh, comment on on what you find, if anything. Um, We'll leave that a mystery for readers of the book Finding Abby. We're speaking with its author, Sean Prentice. Interestingly, Abby grew up in a town called Home in Pennsylvania, and he lived in East Coast cities at various times, but he really didn't want to stay in those places because he was drawn to the West and the Southwest in particular. What was it that that pulled him here? I think it was the the land as a self-willed place. And the term wilderness comes from uh, the term self-willed. And what I mean by that is back east, so much of the land has been developed. It has been farmed. It has been uh, turned into cities or towns. It has been changed and marked. But out west, especially in Abbey's day, so much of that land was still wild. And the land could be seen as original or authentic, and humans, for the most part, were living with that wildness much more than on the East Coast. And you mentioned earlier that you don't want to talk about what I find at the end of the book, but one thing I'll mention that I find at the end of the book that ties to this is the idea of home. And Abby spent so much of his time bouncing back and forth between the East Coast and the West because he'd get pulled to the East Coast by uh, girlfriends and, and, and families and wives but he could never stay there because he always wanted to get back to those wild lands, those lands where he felt much closer to nature. So he would always leave. And the one thing that Abby taught me by the end of the book was to figure out what home means to, to you and, and where to find that home. That's why Abby kept bouncing back and forth, because he kept looking for home and he kept looking for that wildness of the West. And he and you meditate in this book on the question of whether when a person goes into the wilderness, whether he or she is wild. Um, What's the answer? 
Well, I would say that whether or not you go into wilderness, every human is always wild because we are, are animals. And we create this divide between humans and nature so often. And on some level levels, Abby saw that everywhere. But on other, other levels, Abby really loved the idea of separating land from humans. His biggest concern was overpopulation. And he saw that humans were overrunning wild lands, and I think he's very correct about that. But one of the problems with wilderness is that it says that humans have no place in those areas. And again, humans, we are animals. We have a role in every bit of land around us, just as the animals and the plants do as well. So I think Abby would argue more for wilderness, and I would view, I would argue for seeing all wild lands as something that need to be protected, but humans have to have a role in all those wild lands as well. Abby had plenty of ideas about how we should reinvent our political system. And here's From what I've heard one. about democracy, I think it sounds like a fine thing. <laughs> and I think we should try it in America sometime. Some of his views might surprise people, though. I understand folks have actually asked you whom he would have supported in the 2016 presidential race. What do you tell them? Well... People often ask me if they think Abby would have supported Trump because they both shared, I think, the wrongful view of building a wall along the Mexican-American border. So because they shared that view, people always say, do you think you would have voted for Trump? And, you know, my response, my thought is there's not a, a chance in the world that this is who he would have voted for. Abby was definitely anti-immigration, and it was because of overpopulation. It was not for the fiscal reasons that Trump is anti-immigration. And then going back to the quote you just played from Abby about democracy, Abby was very much about a true democracy or anarchism. And my guess is that uh, if he was voting today, he would vote for Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate, just because Abby believed in the anarchist ideal. And that's not what we traditionally think, which is a lawless place, but rather it's the idea that small communities create their own ways to govern, govern their own small areas. And I think Abby would look at that as not just the human community, but also the community of animals and plants. So he would say that, he, I assume he would vote libertarian, and he would say small regions need to come up with their own sets of ways for living in their own specific places. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and author Sean Prentice is my guest. His book, Finding Abbey, The Search for Edward Abbey and His Hidden Desert Grave, was nominated for a Colorado Book Award this year. And it's interesting, Sean, your book is not the only recent coverage of Abbey. There have been several other books and films out just in the last year. Uh, why do you think there's a resurgence of interest in him? I think one of the big issues that we're seeing today is, is talk about climate change. And I mentioned that Abby's biggest cause that he promoted was to stop overpopulation. And I think overpopulation and climate change go hand in hand. So as we're looking at a world that's getting affected more and more by environmental issues, I think Abby's voice can bring a texture to that. So I think that's part of it. Another part, and we see this in our politics, in our TV, is that we love loud and brash things. And if you read Abby, you're going to find someone who is demanding, someone who is loud, someone who can be belligerent, someone who can be rude, uh, but who is always smart as well. So I think 
tone is another thing that yanks people in. And so often in this age, we hear about all the environmental destruction around us, and these are real and important things. But Abby also has fun. He has fun on the page, and he had fun in real life. So as you're reading about these environmental issues, so many writers, uh, we focus on the negative. But Abby often looked at the joy that could be had while doing all this. Hmm. And then finally, you just can't get away from his great writing. He was a super, super writer. You've got to read Fool's Progress, Desert Solitaire, some spectacular work. Yeah, what would you put at the top of the list if, if a listener were going to read one Edward Abbey book? I'm going to give you two for creative nonfiction, Desert Solitaire, Changed the Way We Viewed Nature Writing, Changed the Way We Looked at Nature and the Environment, and then for a novel, I think The Fool's Progress is a beautiful, beautiful novel. It's one of the few novels that makes me cry every time I read the ending. Oh, goodness, which you've done multiple times, it sounds like. Sean, thanks for being with us. Ryan, thanks so much for having me. Sean Prentice wrote Finding Abbey, The Search for Edward Abbey and His Hidden Desert Grave. There's an excerpt, photos of people and places Prentice visited on his search, and links to recordings of Abbey at cprnews.org. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.